Welcome to Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I'm the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year I have the pleasure of attending events to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as I go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand, from lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering to some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. Hello everyone and welcome to this week's episode of our podcast. It gives me enormous pleasure to be able to introduce to you and share with you a conversation I recently had with Professor Ernest Hunter, an incredibly smart human being who has spent much of his time researching Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander mental health in rural and remote Australia. Ernest completed medical school in the University of Western Australia and then he went over to the States where he studied adult, child and cross-cultural psychiatry and public health. He returned to Australia around the mid-80s and undertook his doctoral research in the Kimberley. He also worked as a clinician and academic in Cape York and the Torres Strait until 2016. Ernest has continued to lead a now decade-long initiative in developing leadership in mental health, and I'm really looking forward to sharing with you his journey and his insights as it relates to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander mental health. All right, welcome to today's podcast. Uh, with me, I have the pleasure of introducing to you Professor Ernest Hunter. Ernest, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. We appreciate your time and really looking forward into the insights uh, that you're going to be providing with for us today and our listeners. If you wouldn't mind just starting off a little bit more telling us about your background and, and how the journey to mental health or in the sector started for you. Well, I am a medical practitioner and I grew up and went to medical school in Western Australia. While I was there, I, uh, during my school holidays in the 1960s or so, would go up to Derby, where my brother was a doctor, older brother, and uh, would volunteer at the um, Derby Hospital as an orderly. So I had my first experiences wow. uh, of Indigenous Australia around the same time that the referendum occurred in Australia. Now, the referendum is often seen as being citizenship rights. In fact, it didn't bring citizenship rights. Uh, It simply allowed the Commonwealth to be involved in Indigenous affairs and it included Indigenous people in the the census. And there's an interesting story to that. But um, change was very slow in remote Australia. Um, I remember when I was working as a orderly in Derby Hospital, having women come in to give birth from the Bungarun. The Bungarun was the leprosarium. And uh, on one occasion, I remember being involved in trying to uh, help support a woman who'd just given birth and who would have no further contact with her baby. She was going to go back to the leprosarium and the baby was going to go elsewhere. So that's around the time that Indigenous people were experiencing a profound change in their political life, but percolating through very slowly to remote Australia. 
One of the things that that also did for me was to remind me that the, well not to remind me, but to introduce me to the fact that uh, the profession that I was going to move into, specifically health, had a history in remote Australia. That was exemplified by the Leprosarium, which is just 30 k's out of town. So there are about 350 or so Indigenous people who are buried at the Leprosarium. Uh, many thousands went through. There were um, virtually no Europeans who went through. Uh, that Leprosarium, which was the last to be closed in Australia, uh, and it closed in 1985, was one of a series of institutions that existed for a century, from the 1880s to the 1980s, which were responsible for detaining Aboriginal people against their will, mm. uh, largely for introduced diseases, I might say, um, syphilis and leprosy in particular. So these were essentially places of incarceration. Um, this was a discriminatory, it didn't apply to non-Indigenous people and uh, it had significant long-lasting effects on Indigenous people. In fact, in Western Australia, two interesting points, there was a line across the middle of Western Australia called the Leper Line that was put in place in the 1940s and it prevented Aboriginal people moving south of that line. It was put in place during the Second World War because there were concerns that if Japanese invaded, Aboriginal people uh, would uh, take off and the pastoral industry would collapse. There's a pastoral industry of Northern Australia was built on the backs of Indigenous people. Mm. And they were extraordinarily skillful uh, workers in that industry. But that line continued up until the late 70s. And any Aboriginal person, every Aboriginal child who came south had to be checked for um, leprosy before they were allowed to come south. And indeed, in the 1944 Citizenship Rights Act, which gave conditional citizenship to Indigenous people, um, they had not to have had an Indigenous disease. And the two Indigenous diseases that were so identified were and syphilis, uh, leprosy and syphilis. So there is a kind of a background and a history mm -hmm. that I became um, aware of. I then went on and did medicine. Um, did my psychiatric training overseas in the United States and uh, one day in the early um, 80s was in Ann Arbor, Michigan, walked into a bookstore and saw on the bookshelf a book called Medicine is the Law written by a guy called John Court and I started corresponding with him. He is probably the most significant player in my profession in psychiatry to have worked in Indigenous Australia and he was active from the 60s through to about the end of the 80s. He was an extraordinary character. I began <laughs> corresponding with him, came back to Australia and then went up to do research in the Kimberley, which I did for a number of years. And after that, went to work in North Queensland, where I've been a clinician for about 30 years until two years ago. Well, so, I mean, you've, you've done a lot of stuff uh, and and looking looking at your journey. So you went to um, you went to America. Whereabouts in America did you go and study? Well, I went to three places. I went to St. Louis, um, got it mixed up Missouri. in my mind, Missouri, yeah. got it mixed up in my mind with New Orleans. 
Uh, St. Louis is not New Orleans. And also, I like to surf. The surf in St. Louis is a disaster. <laughs> so I did the obvious thing, and I went to Hawaii. Uh-uh. And um, then I went to Ann Arbor to do a fellowship in child psychiatry. I also did a, um, uh, I did a master's degree in public health, which got me interested in population health, mm. and a degree in religion, which got me interested in thinking about... Um, the interface of those issues and a fellowship in cross-cultural psychiatry. So all of those things came together in thinking about indigenous health because as soon as I began undertaking research in remote Australia, it became very clear to me that the patterns that I was seeing were informed by historical events impacting populations as a whole and reflected policy decisions that um, would only really uh, change when there were population health policy interventions that could address them. Mm. So I guess that early exposure uh, to rural and remote Western Australia, where you were, or Derby, where you were up there seeing firsthand uh, some of the challenges going on there, uh, and uh, and being around during the referendum stage as well. I mean, and, the, and I mean that's just it would have been just such an amazing thing to be exposed to, and that's and that's what drove you to then go seek further study to be able to come back and then affect change. Uh, in part, I, I was privileged to have had that early experience. But when I was in the United States, I wasn't actually thinking about. Um, coming back to work in remote Aboriginal Australia. Mm. And I had started to get involved in working with Native Hawaiian population. Okay. And I really enjoyed that. And the surf was great. Mm. Um, but then two things happened. One is I came across that work by John Court. Yeah. Um, and the second thing was that I had to come back to Australia and um, by the time I had reflected about whether I should go back to the United States or not, stuff had moved on and I chose not to. In retrospect, I'm, I'm really glad that I didn't. I think uh, I've had a phenomenally privileged time working in remote northern Australia and uh, I don't regret that at all. Um, it has been uh, a joy. How did you find the study of indigenous population in Hawaii? Did you, uh, th- were the challenges there that they were going through, were they uh, similar, very different? I mean, that would have been quite, quite interesting. Uh, same but different. Yeah. Um, I subsequently was interested looking and comparing health issues across what's been called Anglo-settler colonial societies. So that is places where whitefellas came and stayed. Mm-hmm. So the United States, Canada, New Zealand and Australia are the, are the um, uh, examples of, of those, uh, the four major Anglo-Settler societies. And Hawaii is one of those, of course. It has quite a different history and its absorption into the United States is relatively recent. Uh, Native Hawaiian people constitute only about 15% of the population of the state and the largest ethnic group, at least in the 80s, and I'm sure it's still the case now, are Japanese. Um, 
And so it's a very multicultural society. And native Hawaiian population um, is disadvantaged by comparison to most, but not as disadvantaged as indigenous Australians are. One of the things that uh, I took away as a, and in fact has influenced me um, in recent times, was the experience of a school system then there. So when I was in Hawaii, the performance of native Hawaiian people up until the 70s or so, academically, by comparison to the other ethnic groups in Hawaii, was poor. Their participation in political process was liminal. And a Hawaiian language, Polynesian language use, was uncommon. Something happened which transformed that. And uh, that was that a very wealthy estate, which has been ongoing for a long time, bishop estates, set up a school system, the Kamehameha school system. And the Kamehameha school system has an enormous endowment. And it set out to do two things, to get indigenous native Hawaiian kids to university and to use culture to teach. So they built a huge research institution and this phenomenally well-endowed school, Kamehameha School. The research institution sought to do something that I haven't seen done anywhere in Australia. That is not to teach culture in school. The job of school is to teach kids to pass exams and to get to university or into a trade or whatever. What they chose to um, task that institute to do was to identify how you use culture to teach. That is not about teaching culture, but how you use culture to teach. Kamehameha School has been extraordinarily successful. They've gone to the Supreme Court on three occasions to exclude children who are not of biological native Hawaiian descent. So they take a really hard line on that. And up until the time I last looked, they um, have been successful. They have, it resulted in an explosion in language fluency, uh, doing two things. One, using language to increase, in, to improve a sense of solidarity and um, unity amongst uh, native Hawaiian people. And secondly, that we know that kids who are raised bilingually get a cognitive benefit from that process. So it's a win-win process, mm. not something that's been happening very much uh, in Australia. Uh, it is massively endowed. So in the 1980s, it was the fourth uh, highest endowment of any educational institution in the United States after Harvard, MIT, one other, and then Kamehameha. So they were operating off a $4.5 billion endowment in the 1980s. Wow. So they had developed an elite institution which started out by scholarship entry then moved on to eventually become open entry. Mm. Now, I don't see in Australia anything near a um, investment of the same level. And I think that the approach to education, which is really tinkering around the edges of systems that are, that are um, really struggling, uh, is not going to generate the same results. So that was one of the things that I took away from the experience of Hawaii. That's incredible. Uh, and the distinctions, I guess, 
that you made there and, and the, the culture, the fact of how they've ingrained that, you know, in, in their society is, is remarkable. And New Zealand are doing some pretty good things with their stuff as well. New Zealand uh, also. I mean, I guess both of those societies and the indigenous people of those societies, of course, have the benefit of having a unitary, a single language, more or less, yeah, and certain other benefits. But these aren't things that are beyond the scope of an advanced society, and Australia is an advanced society. Hmm. So you mentioned those, I mentioned those four Anglo settler societies, and um, some 30 years ago there was some important work done uh, by a, um, a North American researcher who came out to Australia and worked in, uh, in Queensland. He was interested to look at the, how native populations' health in each of those societies compared to the dominant society's health or the dominant culture's health and what the differences said about um, how each of those societies were managing those issues. And a number of things stood out. One was that health appeared to be worse in those countries which hadn't come to a treaty with their indigenous peoples, and Australia stands out there. The other three societies have each had treaty arrangements of one kind or another, uh, very complex in Canada, piecemeal in the United States, and Waitangi in New Zealand have been really important uh, in the long term and really important more recently. The second point that he made was that um, when you subsume the health of an indigenous population, a minority, within the larger group of disadvantaged people generally, they do worse. So if you say, oh, look, um, Aboriginal people are disadvantaged, there are lots of disadvantaged people, what we need is just programs for disadvantaged people. In that situation, Aboriginal, uh, Indigenous people do worse. And um, ironically, in that society which has the most equitable health services for the population as a whole, arguably Australia, we have a fabulous health system. Mm. Um, indigenous health, the gap between Indigenous people and the mainstream is huge. In the United States, where the system is, having worked there for eight years, is buggered. You know, if you, if mm. you've got people who are doing well and a large group of people who just can't afford it at yeah. all. Indigenous health is doing uh, far better by comparison to the mainstream. In part, that's because in the United States, Indigenous health is subsumed within the Indigenous Health Service, which is a federal institution. It's not devolved to local municipalities. It's also complicated there because in the mainstream you also include the health status of Afro-Americans. Mm. But it does mean that we have to ask the question of why are we, who have a great health system generally, um, doing so poorly by comparison to those societies with significant indigenous populations? Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's really interesting, that, that fact, I mean, that you point out because, I mean, it's, uh, it just highlights you know, whilst you say we're an advanced country and, and uh, progressive in a lot of things, but then there's still a long way to go. There is, and um, he, there was one other point that he made, and it relates to the issue of the referendum. Um, he made the point that uh, Indigenous health is worst 
when it devolves to local or provincial governments and best when it's controlled federally. And in the United States, um, of course, it's a federal responsibility. The Bureau of Indian Affairs um, deals with indigenous health. In Australia, it wasn't until 1967 that the Commonwealth had the ability to legislate in Aboriginal affairs. And the colonies, when uh, before federation, uh, when colonies took responsibility for local government, the reputations of certain of the colonies, in particular Western Australia, were so bad that the British government retained control over the administration of native populations. And indeed, at the time that um, uh, that responsibility was passed over, um, there were expectations that a certain proportion in Western Australia of the government's expenditure would be used for the purposes of Indigenous populations, and that was quickly just cast aside. Um, that issue of kind of localization and prejudice, uh, it remains alive and well. Even in the referendum, you see it, that the referendum passed with a 90% yes vote. But the proportion of people voting no was directly proportional to the representation of Indigenous people in the population. So the areas with the highest no vote were the electorate of Kalgoorlie, which was basically all of Western Australia and remote Australia. The places with the highest yes vote were ACT, Tasmania, Victoria. And uh, so it is a good thing that the federal government is taking an active role in uh, Indigenous affairs generally. Mm. But it's only recent. Yeah, yeah very recent. Uh, and. And I guess where do you see? Uh, in fact, let's just go. Let's go to um, the correlations and and what you've been up to with the with the studies you've been doing. So you you've actually um, you've been you've been doing some research uh, in indigenous and remote communities around all of Australia. Uh, do you just want to tell us a little bit about the study, and then we can sort of delve a bit deeper into it. So what I'm going to talk to at this conference are really two sets of data. One set of data was derived from uh, work that I did in the 1980s in the Kimberley. And that was initially looking at uh, self-harm because suicide was extremely uncommon until the mid-80s and then has become very common since. And when I was there, I quickly became aware that there were a number of other issues that I needed to think about to be able to understand why that process was happening. Again, when you see something going from a baseline of zero to very uncommon to being much more common, you've got to ask, what's happened? What's happened historically? This isn't a gene that's getting unmasked. It's not a latent illness that's suddenly declaring it. It's something that's happened with the passage of time. And to understand that, I then had to unpack issues around the history of the Kimberley. And those led to me to think about how those processes 
impact uh, populations and result in that particular outcome, which was um, young people, particularly young men at that time, taking their lives. Subsequently, after working for 30 years in, the Kim, in Cape York and the Torres Strait, um, I've been looking at, with some colleagues who'd also worked in that area, uh, patterns of serious mental illness, in particular um, conditions such as schizophrenia uh, and other psychotic disorders, to ask the question, are there, what's the prevalence of those disorders and are those disorders changing? When we think about self-harm, I think it's easier for us to say, well, look, I can understand how historical issues might influence the occurrence of this phenomenon. We might also say, well, look, I also understand that there are differences from one society to another. We know that there are particular cultures in which self-harm is quite common and particular cultures where self-harm is very uncommon. So automatically you've got a flexibility in the way in which we think about it. However, with something like, uh, and I could if you want to go into the background of what those issues are, which have informed the increase in suicide, at least my thoughts about it. But when we think about something like psychosis, about serious mental illness, mm. uh, I think generally we don't have a sense of that flexibility. That uh, when I was learning about psychiatry, there was a sense that this was something which was really a transcultural phenomenon. You know, it occurred across cultures and it had broadly a similar prevalence. And um, so when we see a condition like that, which is increasing, then it pushes, um, it pushes buttons which, you know, suggest that we've got to think very, different, very differently about it. Mm. What, what would you say are some of the um, leading reasons, I guess, uh, as to all causes of resolving uh, people indigenous communities of Indigenous people taking their own lives? So in the Kimberley, when I went there, and I looked at every death record for uh, 30 years, um, one by one, and uh, to identify the number of suicides, so that was between 57 and 87. And um, there was one Indigenous suicide in the 60s, three, four in the 70s, and 21 in the 80s, almost all in the late 1980s. Wow. So first of all, that demonstrates, and it's gone on to more than 100 per decade now, so it's continued to grow exponentially. Mm. Um, so first of all, that demonstrated that there is a change and that the change was occurring in the 1980s or thereabouts. Yeah. However, when I was doing that, I was also seeing other changes in mortality patterns. And the one that stood out and really startled me was that if you looked at deaths from non-natural causes, and at that time in Western Australia there were four conditions or four um, modes of death that were classified, suicide, homicide, motor vehicle accidents and accidents. So over that period of 30 years, suicide didn't really contribute until mm -hmm. very late. But there was a dramatic change in the patterns of homicide, accidents, and motor vehicle accidents. For Indigenous people in the Kimberley, they had been very low 
up until about 1972, about 2 to 4% of female and male deaths were from non-natural causes. They then increased by a factor of five to 15% and 25% of female and male deaths over the next 15 years. Wow. So you've then got to ask, well, how come, and suicide's not part of that, mm. and the people who were dying were young adults. You've then got to ask the question, well, how come that's happening? What happened mm. in the early 70s? Well, what happened in the early 70s were phenomenal changes in the Kimberley that um, the cattle industry uh, collapsed, an embargo was placed on Australian lean beef, technology was introduced, aerial mustering, road transportation, fencing. You didn't need Aboriginal workers anymore. Aboriginal people across the 80 or 90 station-based communities in the Kimberley sometimes were forced off and many of them just drifted into town. They drifted into town just as Indigenous people were being recruited into the welfare economy. And at the same time, alcohol was made legal for the first time in 1972. Wow. So this was a perfect storm. And the people who were caught up in that storm were young adults. Suicide didn't occur until the late 80s, 15 years later. Those are the children of that generation that were caught up in the storm. Mm. So those young adults who kind of were in literally thrown off track in the early 70s and beyond, their children are the first generation to have grown up in those environments. And it's those children um, who, as adolescents and young adults, constituted the groups from which suicide started to occur. Now, that process doesn't end there because last year we've just had a coronial report delivered into the deaths of children by suicide in the Kimberley. Now, I'd left the Kimberley, but a number of years ago, I looked at a, a series of deaths in Cape York uh, of children who had died within six months of each other. They clustered in time, but that was all, from very separate communities, um, and they weren't related at all, and they didn't know about the other deaths. At that time, there was discussion of this being about abuse, sexual abuse, petrol sniffing, all sorts of things. We managed to pull together information from school, education, family services, child safety, a variety of other issues. Three things stood out. First of all, none of those kids were in their families of origin. Mm -hmm. Secondly, none of them were at school. So if you think about the holding environments for children, they are school and family. Mm -hmm. These were kids who were disengaged. They were just loose. Yeah. And it's those people who kind of push the alarm bells. The third thing that stood out is that all of those children had witnessed suicide, which is often a fairly public event in Indigenous settings. So if you think about those hysterical trends, mm. there is something which in the chaos of the 70s in the Kimberley led to behavioural changes and increasing deaths from non-natural causes. 15 to 20 years later, there's an increase in suicide. These are the children who have grown up in those environments. And 15 to 20 years later, you have the first generation of children who've grown up in environments where 
self-harm has been a normative exposure. Does that explain all of this? No, but I think it's kind of a compelling issue, a compelling example of how to understand what's going on now, you've got to understand what preceded it. And some of the lessons from that have influenced the way that I've thought about psychosis in North Queensland. So, so let's look at that then. Um, how, how, how does it relate? Tell, tell us about how you applied those findings and the psychosis. So what uh, happened was that when I started working in uh, Cape York and the Torres Strait, I set up a database. And that database has every clinical note. So all of, instead of having handwritten notes, all of those notes are on that database, including uh, diagnoses, lab results, everything. That database was maintained for 30 years. So around about 2011 or so, I, and initially it was only me working in that service until around 2004, and then a colleague joined. So um, it had been my impression that psychosis had been, com had been present but not common through the 90s, but was becoming more common in the 2000s. Uh, and to demonstrate whether that was the case or not, we decided to look at every person who had ever had a diagnosis of psychosis on that database to interview them again and to get a measure of what you would call treated prevalence. Mm. How many people in the population have got uh, this serious mental illness? So uh, we did that and spent about six months uh, identifying all of those people. And because of the nature of the environment in which we work, we probably are much more able to have near complete uh, um, representation of yeah. people with pickup. So that demonstrated several things. Uh, we also, while we were doing that, checked their metabolic function and certain other things. So um, what it did was demonstrate uh, some things which we knew and some things which were uh, completely out of left field. First of all, we were able to demonstrate that the prevalence of psychosis in that population was significantly higher than the prevalence in the mainstream population. We also were able to demonstrate that even within that indigenous population of North Queensland, it wasn't evenly distributed and that it was much higher amongst people of Aboriginal descent than amongst people of Torres Strait Islander descent. Interesting. Significantly different. Yeah. Secondly, we were able to show that a number of other factors were more common amongst Aboriginal people than Torres Strait Islander people. They were more likely to have been incarcerated. And they were much more likely to have comorbid intellectual disability. So when you see results like that, you wonder whether you've got it all wrong. Had we somehow been confused by culture, particularly in assessing intellectual impairment? But uh, there were two of us doing it. We both had a lot of experience working in Aboriginal communities. And we also have other data which demonstrates the particular vulnerability of Aboriginal people 
two events which are likely to impact um, cognitive development, specifically to prenatal, early childhood, and later trauma issues, which are all much more common in Aboriginal than Torres Strait Islander populations. So that's the first thing that we did. A few years later, we decided to see if we could identify time trends over that 25, 26 year period. So my friend uh, Bruce Ginther sat down with the database, went through the many thousands of records we had, extracted 440 or so, um, all of those people who'd had a diagnosis of psychosis over those time, over that period of time, and looked at those records. We also linked those records to the deaths database, to the corrections database, mm. and to the database of hospital usage for general hospital usage. So we were able to look at various things. And what we found is that there probably was a real increase in the prevalence of psychosis through the 2000s. But we also see what's, I think, a cohort effect. That is, that if you look at that population in the mid-2010s with the highest prevalence of psychosis, it's people who are 30 to 40. Mm. If you go back 10 years, it's not that group. It's the group who are 20 to 30. They're the same people. Mm. So if you track that back, what it tracks you back is to the mid-80s. So you then say, well, what happened in the mid-80s? Well, what happened in the mid-80s in Queensland is very different to Western Australia because in Queensland, in North Queensland, rather than being scattered across the country on, in very small communities on stations, all Aboriginal people of Cape York, very different in the Torres Strait, were basically rounded up and located in missions which became government settlements. Mm. The missions left in the 60s for economic reasons. The government took over. And in the mid-1980s, they went through a period of profound change. The Queensland government uh, realised that it had to get out of total control of Indigenous people's lives, and they set up a set of quasi-autonomous entities called Deed of Grant and Trust Communities. Mm. Those communities are the communities in which these very high levels of psychosis are found. When the government did that in the mid-1980s, they ran into a problem. And the problem was, how do you fund it? And they shifted the responsibility of that onto the Commonwealth. They did that by two steps. First of all, they got everybody onto welfare, who wasn't. And secondly, they built an alcohol outlet in every community against the wishes of a number of those communities and gave the proceeds of the sale of alcohol to the community for its running costs. Mm. So that when I arrived in the early 90s, some of the communities I worked at had two thirds of their discretionary budget from the sale of alcohol. So as a public health physician, when I would go to them and say, look, um, I've got some ideas about how you can reduce your alcohol consumption, they'd say, you're crazy. Yeah. That's, that's how we hold things together. And it wasn't until 2004 that that nexus was changed. So the group of people that we see... Wow, 2004. Who, 2004. 
So the group of people that we see with the high rates of psychosis, that cohort effect, tracks back to having early development impacted by the chaos mm. that followed those decisions yeah. by the Queensland government. The situation changed quite dramatically in 2004. The government, as a consequence of increasing rates of violence in those areas, introduced through the 2000s, but um, uh, particularly in 2004, alcohol control measures. And um, uh, at that time, what we were able to see was a significant reduction in the acuity of people with serious mental illness in Cape York. So people who had psychosis weren't uh, suddenly non-psychotic, but they weren't getting admitted to hospital and admission to hospital fell dramatically and incarceration um, fell at that time too, except for the number of people who were incarcerated for violent offences because their offences had been committed yeah. prior to that period. So again, what I think this demonstrates is the salience of um, an understanding of the social background and the historical precursors mm -hmm. of those events. It's amazing when you track it back like that I mean, and, you, and you look at those links. I mean, it's, that's incredible, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Oh, well, I think it's, it's amazing. And, and, it's, and how do you think since 2004, obviously, when the controlled alcohol consumption was brought in? So two things happened then. One is that in most communities, but not all, um, alcohol was uh, not available. So in the short term, uh, things changed dramatically. For However, better. for the better. However, ultimately, it comes in in other ways. And secondly, um, the issue of cannabis uh, became more important. Uh, and so cannabis uh, uh, has a very different pathway to its impact on psychosis. Uh, you know, cannabis has impacts in several ways. One is uh, through a direct uh, uh, neuro, neuropsychiatric impact, but it also has impacts independently because cannabis is a major drain on sustenance incomes and as such contributes significantly to levels of stress in communities. So for all of these conditions and issues, you need to think about What's the obvious direct impact, but what are all the kind of collateral and subsidiary yeah. impacts as well? And cannabis over the last 15 to 20 years has become a much bigger issue in remote Indigenous Australia. Now, I have um, not been working in communities for a couple of years, so I'm not up to speed about what the impact of other drugs like methamphetamine, etc., yeah. are, which until the point in time that I uh, um, left wasn't a big issue. One of the other take-home messages in relation to the difference between Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander populations is that it's not just about remoteness. Both of these are remote populations. In fact, the Torres Strait Islander population are more remote than people in Cape York. So remoteness is a significant factor, but it is not sufficient to explain the differences between those populations that we've demonstrated in relation to psychosis. Mm. 
So, so initially, obviously, and you know what, it shows the power of government's decisions too, doesn't it? And, and the effect and the impact it can have on indigenous and rural and remote communities for indigenous people. Uh, absolutely, and that's been the case for over 200 years. Yeah. So that's exactly right. And, um, you know, it demonstrates that uh, there are delayed uh, consequences yeah. and delayed impacts. And some of those consequences then play out across generations. Yeah. So say, for instance, in relation to the issues that I was talking about um, in relation 80s. to self-harm, those are things which have got consequences across generations. Um, as a result, you need to think about uh, interventions and approaches which have that same kind of time frame. And that's, I guess, where I was going to next is, I mean, what do you find could, could be or would be one of the solutions or a couple of solutions with how to intervene or how to um, how to try and get, get it back under somewhat, you know, some sort of control? Because as we know, the suicide rates are still, especially in indigenous populations, are going the opposite way to where we want them to. But what do you think is... So I don't know what... I don't think there's any specific thing that you can do, but I do think that there is a particular ballpark or particular area that we need to increase our input to. Um, and I'll preface that by saying, so we have some significant mental health problems in far north Queensland. When I went to far north Queensland, I was the only mental health practitioner between Cairns and Papua New Guinea. Wow. There's now probably 120, 130 or more. The problems aren't less. So if we think that the solution is Access. a critical mass mm. of practitioners and that mass is 400 or 600, my sense is we'll just keep increasing it. I think one needs to kind of reflect on um, a different paradigm. So that's one thing. Secondly, I think that as long as we look at issues like this as simply being clinical matters, we lose sight of the broader population approaches that we should be thinking about. And unfortunately, I think there's a bit of a relationship between providers and government around this, which isn't unhelpful. And that is, if you've got a problem like uh, suicide and it reflects broad social issues, which relate to unemployment, education, etc. That's a big ticket expensive item. If we say, well, let's call it depression, and then say, are there any doctors or counsellors out there that would like to? Of course there will be. Mm. So it is, it is economically um, to the government's benefit to be able to medicalise mm. these issues. So I think one message is we've got to be able to kind of recognise there's a limit to which you can address these issues with medical interventions and start saying, well, what are the broader social drivers? So if you then want to identify and try and drill down to a narrower area of intervention, my sense is you've got to really look at the uh, importance of pregnancy and the first two years of life. Um, or the first three of early of early yeah. life, and there are a number of interventions and approaches that have attempted to do that. We have the nurse family practitioner partnerships, which are operating across Australia. 
which have attempted to draw on experience from the United States to intervene intensively in those years. Um, the results so far are, are uncertain, but I think it's the right ballpark. Mm. And thirdly, I, I think we need to really emphasise the importance of schools in trying to um, uh, address uh, issues of Indigenous youth mental health. So I'm involved in a, a very small project at the moment, the focus of which is trying to address Indigenous youth mental health by keeping kids engaged in schools. These are regular schools, nothing like Kamehameha. We don't have anything like that in Australia. No. That doesn't exist. I think it'd be a good thing. It'd be nice to get to that. But it doesn't exist. So what we've attempted to do, this is informed by the idea that I mentioned before, that if you think about the vulnerability of those kids who died by suicide, they weren't in home and weren't in school. If we can keep kids in school, maybe we will in increase their resilience. Mm. One of the weak links in the chain, uh, at least in remote areas, is that there's an enormous turnover of teachers. Mm. Now, importantly, kids are more likely to remain engaged in school when there are teachers that are there over a length of time with whom they can develop relationships. Mm. So what we're attempting to do in some schools in Far North Queensland is work with experienced teachers who've got through the first year or two who figured out to love the area that they work in and to remain there and to remain there and be available as teachers for kids who've got mental health issues and to help them through a peer connection with new teachers to influence the extent to which those teachers are likely to remain in situ. So by increasing teacher retention to facilitate the development of relationships and to try and see if we can maintain Indigenous kids at school. I think that the solutions that we find for regional towns and cities are going to be very different to the sorts of solutions that will be necessary in very remote communities. Mm -hmm. And even in remote Australia, the picture is extremely varied. The situation in the Torres Strait um, is quite different to the situation in Cape York or elsewhere. And the hardest area are going to be places like the communities of Cape York, which are, um, in a sense, artificial constructs. They were expediently located. Um, and have brought all sorts of problems along with them and sometimes are really separate from areas where there are economic opportunities mm. that kids and adults can participate in. Those are probably the biggest challenges. But I think we have to put that into perspective. You know, we have um, 600,000 people of Indigenous descent in Australia. That's a complex term. But the proportion of people who live in remote Indigenous Australia it's tiny. You know, we're talking about 50,000, 60,000 people. So I was uh, uh, in um, um, Goa a number of years ago at a conference about leadership and mental health for people from disadvantaged societies. And I was asked to give a talk about mental health services to Indigenous people in, sure. um, in uh, Australia. 
and I did that. But I was talking to people from Libya, from Nepal, wow. from Pakistan, etc., and uh, from China. And um, somebody turned around and said, um, well, how many people are there in that place, Cape York and Torres Strait? And I said, 15,000. And there was just silence, you know. And the silence meant, you mean you can't sort it out with just 15,000 yeah, people? You know, you know, in Papua New Guinea, you've got about 7 million people. Yeah. You've got about five psychiatrists working wow. clinically in the field. So we have to kind of get our headspace around, yeah, around how come we can't, uh, we can't sort out these issues given the abundance of resources in this country. Mm. And I don't think that we should do it by trying to handball that responsibility, or by filling all of those positions, it's a different story, with people, doctors and medical practitioners who are brought in from countries where they're starving for those resources. Yeah. It's a different issue. But I think that uh, there is an ethical issue yeah. about addressing the needs of rural and remote Australia by using staff who come from countries who have paid for the education of those experts from the public purse. Yeah. Only the benefit a completely different country. Unless we have a relationship in which we are able to reciprocate mm. and provide for the expenditure that that country undertook to train those people. Mm. It's, a, it's a complicated ethical issue where I think one needs to balance individual rights and certain other rights. What would you like to see uh, moving forward? Uh, what would you like to see change? with regards to rural and remote communities as it relates to Indigenous mental health? What would I like to see change? I think one of the problems that's been a, a riding in the sidecar of sort of neoliberal changes across the Western world has been an increasing outsourcing of responsibilities to NGOs and other organisations and the sense that the market will solve everything. Allied to that has been a, a, a dismantling of public service. Now the public service had all sorts of problems but it also involved domain knowledge. It involved people who were likely to develop experience in an area and stay. Mm. Increasingly, we're reliant on short-termers in remote Australia. Yeah. yeah, and um, we have sometimes a rotating door of providers. This is more in the training sector than the health sector, but in the training sector in remote Australia, there are a number of organisations which kind of rotate, close and reappear under another, another um, mantle somewhere else. And I think we, we have lost the ability to have enduring relationships amongst professionals working in these areas. Um, and I'd like to see that change. And clearly, um, Ultimately, you want to have equitable representation across all disciplines, 
mm. uh, of Indigenous people in the workforce. Medicine has actually been reasonably good at addressing that in the last decade or so. So the proportion of Indigenous people in the medical student population has increased dramatically. That hasn't been replicated across the other health disciplines. Um, and I think uh, ultimately um, the impact of those people is not just going to be working with Indigenous people, mm. but you know when people work, wake up in Vaucluse on the North Shore of Sydney and the anaesthetist and Aboriginal person, that's about changing attitudes mm. and beliefs as well. So I think equitable representation and seeing those people across the, the spectrum of specialities and other areas in the Australian workforce. That's really interesting. Tell me about what the, what the future holds for you. Where, where do you see yourself and, and are you... Um... Well, I'm retired. I like to, I don't surf so much now, but I do a lot of paddling. Wow. So I've just published a novel which pulls all these things together. Yeah, and it's so for your training. yeah for your readers, yeah, your so listeners, the carriers. Tell training. them how they can access that. Oh, you can just go onto the website and go to the bookshop, and or go onto Google it, and yeah. um, you can order it, and it's available as an ebook. And there are reflections. It's not a, about health services, but there are reflections about the changes in health services over time. Wow, that's been fun. And so with the paddling, uh, you like doing, is it freshwater creeks and rivers? Or no, is it more no. Uh, I've paddled the whole length of the Great Barrier Reef, so about wow. uh, 3,000 kilometres. I've done most of that multiple times. So I know the Great Barrier Reef probably up close and dirtier than most. Wow. So I'm also aware of the ecological tragedy, the absolute tragedy that we're facing with what was once the largest living structure visible from space and soon be the largest. Well, um, even in my lifetime and in the past 20 years of crossing it, I can see the differences, not only in the build-up of plastic, but in the disappearance of the reef. Mm. You don't have to have the scientific background. So, for instance, uh, one of the areas where there's a big research station is on Lizard Island and... um, Historically, there's a, a, wonderful air, a wonderful reef around Lizard Island. And I first paddled over that reef in about 2003 and paddled over it just a couple of years ago. And um, it's, um, it's uh, devastated. Is that right? Yeah. So um, I also note in the press just recently that the return of, uh, of shearwaters um, hasn't happened this year. One of the things that uh, I was always um, fascinated by, because I would paddle during the same mm-hmm. period that the shearwaters would come through and uh, nest in particular areas uh, that I would visit. And I was just devastated to see in the last week reports that um, only a few dozen of the 40,000 shearwaters that usually come south had arrived this year. It's not quite clear wow. what's happened. That's much further south. Mm. But, um, and of course, this year, uh, with the cyclone hitting the Gulf area, some 400 kilometres of mangroves have, have been uh, destroyed. Wow. So, you know, the combination of, of serious events, of 
of runoff, of the impacts of commercial activities, etc. You, you, you don't need to look hard, it's obvious. And I would say climate change is the biggest mental health challenge of this generation and probably for the foreseeable future. Is that right? Absolutely. Indigenous people are going to be particularly impacted because climate change will impact the most disadvantaged. Mm. Um, you know, it, it, it's, yeah, it's happening already. Yeah. Well, you've shed some light on some really interesting uh, topics and, and thank you for the work that you're doing, especially as it relates to uh, Indigenous communities in rural and remote Australia. Tell me, uh, who's been a source, uh, as we close, who's been a source of inspiration for you? Well, I mentioned, well, there's a few people. I mentioned John Court. Yeah. He was, um, he was an extraordinary guy who was uh, skilled in many areas. He was recognised more out of Australia than in Australia. He was a professor at the University of New South Wales, but he was... Um, better known in the United States than in Australia. And um, he was a significant influence. Also, my brother, who was a doctor in remote Australia for 50 years, was probably the person primarily responsible for um, getting me into Indigenous settings. And then there have been a number of Indigenous people, some prominent, but particular people who uh, um, I had met as patients or in a research context who really influenced me. And I went to the funeral of one of them um, just a, a couple of um, months ago and a man who died of renal failure in Cairns who had a very interesting history. Um, his opportunities had been stunted in particular ways by circumstances. But I only realised when I became quite emotional in standing up to say something, um, how influential that uh, his the, the, the intermittent contacts I had with him were. So when you ask who was important, um, you know there are people you recognise, and then there are people that you know for some reason they've influenced you, and you never really realise it. You do, you don't get a chance to thank them. Mm. Well, you're certainly on a unique journey and the experience you've had, I mean, it's such, I mean, it sounds incredible from an adventure point of view, but also from the experience and, uh, and the research and the findings that you're doing and the correlations you're making, it's really, really fascinating. Um, is there anything you want to say in closing? Any, any closing remarks or any, any final words you want to tell our listeners? Uh, look, I've um, had a privileged uh, life in this space. Um, I think that uh, it's important that working in remote Indigenous Australia um, is seen as a privilege. And unfortunately, I think we have ended up trying to sell it as a hardship point and a hardship role. And so the people are more driven by, by incentives mm rather than driven by example and yeah and i think that that um, is just not how it should be and uh, that should change this should be an area where 
the smartest minds and the people who most want to stay are. And um, I don't think that's too much to ask. Mm. Well, Ernest, I appreciate your time and thank you for your insights. It's been uh, really good, um, really informative and actually really fascinating to hear everything you've had to say. So we appreciate your time. Cool. And thanks for coming on and sharing your journey. Okay. If people want to get in touch with you, how would they do that? Is there a website? Is it? No, I don't have a website and okay. I don't use social media. But my email, okay. email is ernest underscore hunter at bigpond.com. Well, there you go. Uh, if you have anything uh, yeah, you want to talk about or get in touch with Ernest, be sure to reach out. We appreciate your time. Thanks for coming and sharing your journey. I'm looking forward to hearing more about what you're doing. Cheers. Thanks. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.